It's a jackalope carnival. Jack, jack, jackalope. Jackalope carnival. Hi, I'm Becca. Hi, I'm Eric. And you're listening to Season 2, Episode 8 of Jackalope Carnival, a sideshow of stories, a bi-weekly podcast where we explore the paranormal, the unusual, and the downright odd. For today's episode, we're going back to our roots. Today, we're back to cryptids, specifically water cryptids. And if when I said water cryptids, you began to hear the sound of bagpipes playing softly, you smelled the scent of haggis and Through the highland mist of your mind's eye, you pictured a majestic Scottish beast called Nessie. You're not alone. Um, Probably most people do. And while we mention her in passing, in this episode, we're strictly in North American waters. So Eric is going to start us off with the mid-Atlantic region's answer to Nessie. Chessie. Indeed. Yeah, I never leave very far from Baltimore, do I? Sometimes you do. Yeah, we talked about all kinds of stuff. Um, West Virginia. (laughs) (laughs) So far. (laughs) So near and yet so far, I think, is what you're looking for there. You're not wrong. Um, And he's going to tell us about a mysterious manatee of, wait, Baltimore, right? The manatee of Baltimore. That that is the correct name for her, actually. She is the manatee of Baltimore. Okay. I can't wait to hear more about that. I'll be telling you about the mysterious Cadborosaurus, a creature that has been called Ogopogo, more properly called Inkahaikt, I probably murdered that, I'm doing my best on this one, of the Pacific Northwest, and we'll be looking into understanding cultural beliefs when we talk about what a lot of people think of as cryptids. So, Eric, you're going to start us off? Sure. I would love to tell you about the, well, first we'll talk about the cryptid known as Chessie. This is a tale of two Chessies, if you will. <laughs> it was, th- never mind. I was was about to I was about to launch right into it oh it was not the best of times it's still 2021 anyway uh, what is a cryptid just to remind folks uh, for those who are longtime listeners of course you know this but in case any new folks are signing on welcome and we're glad you're here a cryptid is an creature an animal sometimes something monstrous that is not currently known or confirmed by the scientific consensus. And it can be a couple of different things. And the interesting thing is, is that actually till, or at least at first, I should say, both Chessies were cryptids of sorts. Because you can have like a monstrous cryptid, right? You can have something that is a, just a straight up, you know, something you think of as a monster, thinking of here like the Jersey Devil. You could have also something that is a bit of anachronism, Something like a, I'm thinking like dinosaurs that are, you know, sometimes spotted that are supposed to be extinct or like the coelacanth uh, fish or, right, yeah, those those kind of things. Or you can just have an animal that doesn't belong where it's sighted, like the big cats of Great Britain or Appalachia. All those counts as different type of cryptids, right? So no one's not, no one's saying there's not such a thing as like a black panther. What they're saying is, is that you're not likely to be seeing Uh, some kind of Black Panther in the English countryside. But cryptids can move from being a cryptid to becoming just an animal, confirmed animal. And that can happen. 
sometimes, as is the case with the coelacanth, right? I mean, although I don't think that anyone they thought it was extinct. Yeah, that's right. I don't think anyone was spotting it before they before it was confirmed by science. You know, I think that people are just kind of like, yeah, "Whoa, I mean, it's still around." Yeah, but it but it is rare. It's very rare. Just going into the different kinds of cryptids here. So both of the chessies that we'll talk about today are, in fact, different types of cryptids. But the first chessie, the chessie that was cited first, actually. And of course, Chessie is a play on Nessie, which is the nickname of the Loch Ness Monster. And the Loch Ness Monster has a history in the lore that goes back quite a while. But really, really, the modern Chessie starts, of course, in the 20th century. And, or excuse me, Nessie starts in the 20th century. And so does Chessie. And Chessie's short for Chesapeake Bay Monster, right? I suppose. I don't think that's ever been said out loud. Like, no one ever calls it the Chesapeake Bay Monster. They call it Chessie or they call it Ah, it's stolen my boat. But I don't think that it has like another name. So the first modern sighting, there was a sighting of like a sea serpent or sea monster. It was not given a real name. In 1846, according to both of my sources for this week, I used American Monsters by Linda S. Godfrey, which is a great book on cryptids. But I also used Weird Maryland, which is just one of my favorite books. One of my favorite fun books. Those were mostly where I got the lore from. I also listened to a couple of local television station uh, news stories from various decades of the 20th century, mostly, that were telling the story of people talking about their sightings of Chessie. And it was mostly men who were on boats who have these wonderful Baltimore accents. If you don't know what a Baltimore accent sounds like, do yourself a favor. Go ahead and look up uh, Chessie sighting and uh, go watch some videos because they're pretty awesome. In that, actually, I found in WBAL-TV, apparently there is a local professor who is collecting Chessie accounts and stories. Dr. Eric Cheesum of Chesapeake College also gave me some information about Chessie. Nice. I love his, he gave a great quote on it. He said, the history of Chessie is rooted in the weirdness of the 1970s. The 1970s <laughs> were a decade of weird. Yeah, I'm assuming probably Baltimore especially. Dr. Eric Cheesum. <laughs> absolutely. Without question. So we get our first modern Chessie sighting. Again, not counting the 1846 aberration of a sea serpent or a sea monster in the 1930s, 1934 to be specific. And what is spotted is a black serpentine creature with a horse head. And what makes this remarkable, apparently, is that the head rose 12 feet out of the water, so the cider said. And that's not just a sea serpent in the water or an oarfish or like, you know, some kind of snake, say. Um, that's something completely different. But in 1963, local helicopter pilot will also spot something serpentine in the water. And then in the 1970s. Both American Monsters and Weird Maryland say that a CIA employee reported <laughs> seeing a a serpentine creature. And that's the, the adjective that keeps popping up over and over again is serpentine. This is a very snake-like creature, apparently. It was the CIA accountant. That's not what's that's not what they're wanting to tell you though. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even getting into it. On June 14th, 1980, though, we get an actual person who's willing to come out and say, I saw it and attach his name to it, a fellow by the name of Godwin Muse. And he's fishing with some friends in the Potomac River. And my favorite thing is that he starts off his account with the quote, 
swore that we weren't drinking, which I well, find yeah. interesting. I mean, hard drugs aren't drinking. <laughs> I get Godwin. I looked at Godwin Muse. He doesn't strike me as um, the tune in turn on dropout type. I'll just say that. He seems like a pretty sober headed American. Well, that's male. what he wants you to believe. I'm not going to look. I'm, He's I'm not, not going to cast dispersions. I am right, not casting right, dispersions will... upon Mr. Muse. God bless him. He's willing to come out here and make a cryptid, you know, account and put his name on the line. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to defend my fellow Marylander on this one. All right. Yeah, and that's you know you bring up a good point though. People always say I wasn't drinking. I full confession here. I've been known to drink alcohol <laughs> in my past. And I've never seen a cryptid while drinking. Like, that's not what alcohol does. It makes me talk a lot and say stupid things. But, like, it doesn't make me see things that aren't there. Maybe I'm just not Maybe drinking. Maybe you're just not drinking enough, exactly. <laughs> right. Or the right kind. Who knows? Right. Maybe I've been too temperate. I have no idea. But people say that. But that doesn't seem to be... Maybe or maybe again, I don't hang around the right kind of people. I don't know. None of the people I know who drink alcohol hallucinate while they drink. Like that's not a common side effect of ethanol as a drug. So I don't know why people always say that. Like people are like, "Were you drinking?" And I'm like, "Drinking what exactly? Like ergot?" Anyway, sorry, I'm I'm kind of getting distracted here, aren't I? Well, that's actually it's uh, Godwin Muse's sighting is going to be the vanguard of an entire smattering of sightings. And interestingly enough, on both sides of the Chesapeake Bay, what you might not know if you're not from this region is the Chesapeake Bay basically bisects Maryland. It separates Maryland's eastern shore from Maryland's western shore. So Baltimore is on the western shore. And of course, the Delmarva Peninsula and Ocean City and Delaware are on the eastern shore. And Chessie managed to apparently swim on both sides of the Chesapeake and get sawed. In 1982, Robert Frew also made an account. And here's the interesting thing about Robert Frew. He actually took a video, which in 1982 is pretty amazing because, you know, back then people didn't just have cell phones that had cameras on them. You know, you had to have an actual video recorder that was pretty big at the time. And you, too, can see what he recorded because it's all over the Internet. It is mostly looks like dark kind of moving objects through the water. And they do look pretty sizable. He turned what he found over to the Smithsonian. And interestingly enough, they came back and the only thing they would say in terms of identification was that it was in fact animate. In other words, it was moving by its own power. It wasn't just driftwood. But other than that, they couldn't say exactly what it was. And from there, hmm. that's really kind of the end. There's no good chessy story except for, you know, our friend Godwin Muse, who perhaps protests too much that he and his friends were uh, yeah, drinking. Yeah, I'm sorry. I threw down the gauntlet on that one. <laughs> right. But I there... shan't make that mistake again. <laughs> Do not impugn my friends. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Um, there's no good story about it, right? It's just basically people saw it. And most people didn't record it. And some people did. It hasn't been Chessie's behaved herself. She hasn't overturned any boats. There hasn't been anything linked to it. It's just sometimes people see things in the Chesapeake Bay that look like something that doesn't fit our current understanding of water creatures. I do have to say one thing, though, and this is my caveat, and I can't believe I'm doing this, especially 
I can't believe I'm doing this about Maryland's official cryptid or unofficial cryptid, I guess. But there is a creature that looks a lot like what people would call a sea monster. Now, this is not a creature that would raise its head out of the water 12 feet, and it certainly doesn't have the head of a horse. But there's something called an oarfish, and oarfish are huge. Oarfish are known to grow, in fact, over 30 meters long. So we're talking about a really long fish, and they are snake-like. They normally live at very deep levels, but do come up to the surface occasionally. And when they do, they normally scare the crap out of people because they look like giant snakes. But in fact, they're just really, really large fish. So I do wonder if some of these sightings of giant snake-like creatures could in fact be an oarfish because those are big snake-like creatures. And I'm not really... I think that sometimes people have found like when they have had evidence, oh, this is washed up on the shore. Um, It's a sea monster. And they've found that it's an oarfish or like a half-eaten whale. Right. Have you heard the term globster? Because that's one of my favorites. Yes. Yes, I have. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Right. A globster globster is a large marine animal that has decomposed to the point where it's almost impossible to identify. So there are often things like whales or basking sharks, something that's very large. But once they've decomposed a bit, you know, all you get is like a skeleton with, you know, rotting meat hanging off of it. So, yeah, people don't really know what they are. But I'm not really one who usually does that, right? I really get annoyed, in fact, when people say every flying cryptid is a sandhill crane or an owl. And the reason I do that is because both of those animals don't look like the cryptids that they are often accused of being. But oarfish do look like giant snakes. So for this one, I'm actually willing to give the benefit of the doubt to the fact that this could be a known animal because the known animal does fit the description. Can an oarfish undulate? (laughs) I feel like there's a joke there, and I'm not sure what it is. (laughs) Only on Friday. Right, exactly. (laughs) Only when she's putting herself through college. Sorry. So, um, yeah, but but that's I think some sometimes when people have said that it, it's saying that they've moved differently than an oarfish. Maybe so, and I'm not an expert on, on oarfish undulations to know that. So we're just going to leave that there. But I'm going to turn the page now and talk about the other Jesse. And then you're going to you you have a lot to talk about, right? You have I do. I have I have a lot to say. So let's hear about this. I can't wait because this this is just great. I love the other Chessy. The other Chessy started out life also as another cryptid, but quickly was confirmed to exist in 1994 in Kent Narrows on the eastern shore of Maryland. Someone spotted a manatee. And if you don't know what a manatee is, they are an aquatic mammal. They're sometimes called sea cows. They're related to dugongs that live in Africa. But they're animals that usually live in salt water and they're vegetarian. They munch on plants, but they get really large. And they normally hang out in tropical and subtropical areas. You might associate manatees, if you know what they are, with Florida, or you may have seen them. But they don't really make their way up to temperate waters like Maryland. In Maryland, the waters get way too cold for manatees in the winter. In fact, during especially harsh winters, sometimes in Maryland, parts of the Chesapeake Bay will freeze. And no manatee could survive that. But it's actually water much cooler, or excuse me, much warmer than freezing will put a manatee into a state of torpor, and that's really dangerous for them. And that actually happened to poor Chessie at one point. So they saw a manatee, and at first... 
people didn't believe it. They said, there's no way that a manatee is swimming around the Chesapeake Bay. But it was quickly confirmed to exist by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And they teamed up with SeaWorld and with Maryland Department of Natural Resources. And they all got together and they caught her. Although, honestly, manatees aren't hard to catch, apparently. They're hard to transport because they're just so big. But they're not hard to catch because they're very slow moving. They found her and they flew her back. She was the first manatee in history to ever ride in an airplane. And they put her back into... Oh, excuse me. I've been calling her her this whole time. And I'm looking at his current like position. There's, In case you're wondering, <laughs> there is a, there's a, now a Chessie tracker. He's still alive. As of the 18th of September, when we're recording this episode, uh, Chessie is still alive. And I wish him a long, happy, and healthy life. He was flown back to Florida. And he's still around. They have a tracker on him now, so they can keep track of him. But the really fun thing about his story, though, is that... <laughs> They flew him back to Florida and he came back to Maryland the next year. I, I was going to ask, does this Chessie keep visiting? He does. And they stopped flying him back because they're like, I guess you know what you're doing, you know, if you keep coming back. So I know manatees were thought to the mermaid, uh, the legend of the mermaid was thought sometimes to have been manatees. So oh, that, that, I'm going to throw that in the Sandhill Crane bin because I've seen pictures of mermaids and I've seen pictures of manatees. I'm gonna. You have- know, there could uh, that could be just beauty standards. It could have been plus size mermaids, Eric. I'm gonna have to be away at sea alone for a long time before I'm. Going and to they stake. and people were fair enough. That was common. We're not done with with Chess with Chessie the manatee though, because I have, I have yeah. more to talk about here. Just just a little bit more, if I could, please. In August of 2001, he was spotted through uh, swimming in Virginia in some canals. Apparently, manatees really like canals and slow-moving rivers. By 2011, though, his transmitter, his original transmitter had fallen off, but he had a particular set of scars that really made him identifiable. He didn't stop with Maryland. He actually made his way up to Rhode Island at one point. So he might be one of the most wide-roaming manatees you know, he's he's known as that manatee that wanders. He's just the weird manatee that likes cold water. He just can't take the heat in Florida. I like to think he's a traveler. He likes to travel. He said it's the humidity, really. <laughs> I, I like to think he has little stickers all over him from all his places he visits. But awesome. unfortunately, um, he ran into a bit of trouble in his travels. In February of 2021, why is it always you, 2021. They found poor Chessie and he was emaciated and malnourished and he had pneumonia and it looked pretty bad for him, actually. But the good folks at SeaWorld were able to treat him. Uh, well, you know, you got to you, we have to give credit where credit is due, at least. Critique another time. But I said nothing. I said no words. I, I can he- clearing my throat. I can- <laughs> You know I can hear what you think sometimes. Anyway, at this at this point they did they did Chessie a solid. They got him back to, to good health and they released him and he is doing alive and well. And as of the Clearwater Marine Aquarium tracker of Chessie, at this very moment that we are currently recording, I can tell you exactly where he is. And he is I can't wait. I know, right? He is right outside of Blount Island, 
right by the St. James River, St. John's River, pardon me. And the closest city to where he is is Jacksonville. So actually, my little brother's in Jacksonville as we speak. Mm-hmm. Is it a conspiracy? Your little brother is actually. Actually, my little brother loves conspiracy theories. And so, Richie, if you're out there, please uh, be on the lookout for Jesse and wave hi to him and tell him his friends in Maryland say hi. So that's what I got. That's the tale of two Chessies for me. That's pretty fascinating. I love the thought of a uh, traveling manatee. So we're getting, since we, we went we went from Florida's warmth, we're getting chilly again. Uh, we, we're talking about the Pacific Northwest. And we've talked about Pacific Northwest before when we did an episode about Bigfoot. But because we're doing water cryptids today, I'm going to talk about two that are often referred to together in newspapers and cryptid circles. So I want to start off with a family of sea creatures. So it's not simply one. People have seen more than one of them. Um, They're first originally recorded in 1933 off of Cadboro Bay in Victoria, British Columbia in October. Major H.W. Langley and his wife told the local newspaper that they had seen something unusual when they were out sailing in the bay. You know, they were minding their business and something they saw wasn't couldn't be explained. It was a cryptozoological creature. And soon after the newspaper article of their encounter was published, people started coming out of the woodwork to share their stories about earlier accounts of a greenish, brownish, sometimes camelid, sometimes equine, sometimes bovine, headed serpent-like creature that was between 20 to 100 feet long with a ridged back, but sometimes a smooth back. 20 to 100 <laughs> feet. That's a... That's like yeah, a, with fins. It's quite and the, so, the size-changing creature, camelid, well, if you will. Well, there was many, but they, I don't know if y'all remember, like, the dress was black or black and gold or, or blue and gold, like, blue or gold. So it was a gold and white or blue or black. That was way back in uh, 2015, and we shared that picture of the dress yeah this is originally kind of this was the original the dress okay but it was a horse head no it was a camel head it was brown (laughs) no it was green so there are many accounts of seeing creatures what we do know is there were definitely many accounts of seeing creatures in Cadboro Bay Um, it turns out since the 19th century European colonists to the Pacific Northwest had a lot of tales of these creatures but the newspaper article gave them a little more courage to come forward. In one account, Hubert Evans, who was a prominent and respected Canadian author, tells a tale about watching the creature with family and friends. And so he's working on doing some farm work. He looks out and he sees something that at first he's like, oh, that's just, you know, seals. That's this line of seals. And this water's kind of undulating. I'm using the word undulating again here (laughs) just for you. Um, you do it. And uh, he realizes that, no, I, I know what seals look like, and that is not a seal. And Seals don't undulate. His, it's well-known fact. <laughs> yeah. 
they do actually. Um, <laughs> but he realizes that this isn't a seal. This is something that's unidentifiable. His family looks at it. He actually ends up going back to his work, which I can't imagine like, oh yeah, hey, <laughs> there's a unicorn out there. All right, going back to work. Um, but he does, and he doesn't tell anything. They are afraid of rid- ridicule. And they realize that if they tell anybody, uh, they're not going to be believed. And so the story is kept silent for years until this article comes out. And it gives him and other people courage to talk about their experiences. And since the creature slash creatures were spotted near Cadbora Bay, the editor of the Victoria Daily Times, his name is Archie H. Wills, he dubs the serpents Cadborosaurus, or Caddy for short. And so um, now we have a, a scientific name for this group of creatures. Now, I was doing a lot of research um, and I spent a long time um, looking online through um, university library searches. And I spent a long time looking in different articles and I found a man named Darren Nash and it's N-A-I-S-H. I hope I'm pronouncing that correct. Um, He's a paleontologist and he's also a bit of a a skeptic. So he's a debunker on cryptids. And he I spent all this time looking through all these articles, but the most clear one he actually just has on his Twitter feed. So if I would have just <laughs> done a Google search, <laughs> fair enough, I would have found um, uh, probably a lot quicker. But what he says is that indeed it's no coincidence that caddy sightings first really hit the news in 1933. This is the year which Loch Ness monster fever took the world by storm. I maintain that this is no coincidence. I put it that popular interest in the Loch Ness Monster drove journalists on the west coast of North America and elsewhere to start writing about their own similar water. And later he goes on to say that Wills absolutely admitted it. He said it was a fun story. It was the depression (laughs) during a depressing (laughs) time. And, you know, he just did it to cheer people up, have something fun. Um, Interestingly enough, the first sighting of Chessie, the really startling account of the animal that was holding its head high up in the air is 1934. So yeah, right right in the middle of Chessie fever. It was Loch Ness fever, Loch Ness fever. Or Loch Ness fever. That's a great, I don't know what our band name would be, but Loch Ness fever is a really hit song name. Maybe, or as actually Loch Ness fever could be a cover band, right? Oh, okay. Loch Ness Fever is a cover band. I, I just, yeah, okay. Now, wouldn't it be like Chessie Fever is the cover band <laughs> for Loch Ness? I got a fever. Right. <laughs> the only thing that'll cure it. It's cryptids. cryptids. More cryptids. More cryptids. So, yeah, it seems like that there was definitely something to this that sea lake monsters, serpents were selling newspapers in the 1930s, right? They could have really gone gone for the gold with like Lindbergh baby stolen by sea serpent. But um, was the weekly world news around at that point? Because if so, they probably did. Yeah, you're like it's you're like Google it. It's probably already out there. Um, And did it really matter if it was in the 30s for that headline? But in the case of Caddy, the creatures that come to light when RCH Wills so gleefully and prolifically publishes these stories, um, yeah, it's definitely the case. And I, I read one that was talking about if it was a girl or a boy, and it said if it laid an egg, they had to call it Amy. I'm not sure why Amy. <laughs> it's like, it's, I like, I like the, the, the verb have to. Like, there's, there's an imperative in this one. It must. 
No, I mean, I think that was actually the title. But um, so, yeah, Amy, which is really different than Caddy for Cadborosaurus. I'm not sure where Amy came from. But, you know, fun as this is and fun as they are to talk about these creatures, I'm going to say that they're not just Nessie in another form, because it's especially not just Nessie in another form to the indigenous people of that region. And I'm going to get into that in just a minute. And I promise, I promise, not like the spectral dogs episode where I, it's pointed out that I promised to talk about spiritual animals and cultural appropriation. And then I didn't, I promise (laughs) I'll get more to this. So there's now been a lot of people who've seen Caddy more than just 1930s. You've had people on ships to a 1993 sighting from a Cessna. So just like when you were talking about Chessie from land, from air, from sea, people have seen this creature. And while they can all be explained as different phenomena, there are enough sightings that garnered attention in those in science in biology, whether they're skeptics or believers. So like other cryptids, there's some photos, not really strong evidence. But in 1937, the most compelling puzzle piece was brought forth. And it was probably a globster, but Hmm. it was a Cadborosaurus carcass that was found in the belly of a sperm whale. Hmm. It was about 12 feet long. And, you know, it was partially decomposed they took some pictures of it it has you know it does have kind of a camelid head and long coiling body and you can see something that might have been flippers they displayed the creature they took a lot of pictures of it and then they got rid of it because it was a rotting carcass (laughs) right like one does as one does and you know was it really a cadborosaurus baby probably not i think cadborosaurus Uh, baby makes a much better band name that is actually an awesome band name, Loch Ness Fever being our first hit song. I like it. There we go. Um, but it captures the imagination and the interest of more than a few people then, because obviously it was quite the sensation of its time, but also in the future. And this is going to include professional zoologist and amateur cryptozoologist Ed Boosfield, who I'm again might be pronouncing this wrong. And he teamed up with an oceanographer and another amateur. A cryptozoologist Paul LeBlanc in the 90s to form to form a super team, no, to publish a formal scientific paper that described the carcass. And, you know, they had been around the same area. They kind of met briefly in the 80s and then reconnected at an academic conference, as you do, where they both found out they were pretty into cryptozoology, into Cadborosaurus. They eventually, maybe they are kind of a super team, they eventually write an academic paper on the carcass in a book called Cadborosaurus Survivor from the Deep. They both said that there's really no living creature with the characteristics of Caddy in their book. They write this, a visual comparison of Caddy with other major marine contenders, sharks, sea lions, etc., illustrates how strikingly different it is. And they give caddy an actual scientific name which is cadborosaurus will will see so i'm guessing will see is after wills makes sense and so cadborosaurus will see is what they've been trying to find they believe that caddy could be a type of reptile that also has mammalian characteristics because of unlike that egg amy was supposed to lay it's thought to give life birth Hmm. now undoubtedly 
There's been a lot of misidentifications over the years, as we saw in Evan's story, you know, a traveling herd of sea lions could be mistaken for a multi, an undulating, shall we say, um, (laughs) humpback creature. And side note here, there are a lot of different words for a group of seals. Um, I was just herd. going to ask that. I was like, is herd actually the name for a group of... Herd is, but there okay. are a lot, including, and I quote, a colony, a rookery, a herd, a harem, and also a bob. And I really like a bob of seals myself. Yeah, I'm going with that one too. Awesome. So um, a bob of seals. So yes, they might have mistaken the bob of seals for it, but... And basking sharks, as Eric mentioned before, you know, they bask on top of the water and they kind of look like floating logs. And they're huge. Yeah. And they used to have them along once upon a time, many more of them. While there's not as many around British Columbia today, there used to be more. So some of these sightings have actually been proven to be basking sharks. You know, what is caddy? Reptile, mammal, hybrid. Most cryptozoologists believe that this live birth and this undulating spine probably puts it closer to a whale <laughs> than a reptile. Or, Every time you say um, undulating, I have this really odd image in my head, but. I'm using, I'm going to just use it every other word now, but um, <laughs> they think that should. it might be a Basilosaurus, which is an extinct giant whale, which they also think might be the identity of a serpent-like creature who's been said to be seen on Lake Okanagan about 485 kilometers away. And because I'm American, it's also 301 miles away. <laughs> I yeah, I had it, to Google that. <laughs> What if has anyone said that it might be a sandhill crane? Uh, yeah, it's definitely they're all sandhill cranes. Yep, there are um, sandhill cranes that are swimming in a uh, a bob. They're known to undulate only when they're swimming in a bob. So, um, confuse <laughs> some people. So, and again, <laughs> um, Lake Okanagan, again, uh, three hundred and one miles or four hundred and eighty-five kilometers away from our um, our bay, our Cadboro Bay, and. Since we've been, and this is leads me to my sort of thoughts on this, since we've been investigating cryptids, I've noticed that while a lot of sightings of cryptids in North America tend to have been reported in the 19th and 20th century, I know Jersey Devil's taking offense here. <laughs> simmer down, simmer down, Jersey Devil. Tapping his hoof. Um, many of them have older stories that tie them to indigenous people of the lands that they appear on. And like we did mention this a little when talking about Bigfoot, it's the case with like Uctana, Wendigo, Moon-Eyed People and others. And as European colonial settlers and their ancestors began to occupy North America and report tales of these cryptids, they tended to take them a little bit differently than the stories that they had heard from the first peoples of the area. And sometimes when we take something out of its context culturally, we tend to misunderstand. And so a lot of times these got interpreted as literal beasts and monsters. But when I was looking into Lake Okanagan and the Inkahaik and the Salik people, or also known as the Okanagan peoples, the first peoples of that area, this really drove that idea home. Because I think that this case asks us to give a different look at what we what are referred 
to by a lot of people as cryptozoological creatures or even hoaxes. So a lot of times people look into cryptids as, you know, they this mysterious creature or they debunk it as hoax. And I think they're in you know, this is a show about belief. So we talk about this and I think it invites us to listen and understand these cultural and spiritual contexts and meanings and connections to belief of creatures that we don't understand whether they're real or not, the ideas behind them. And for the Salih, I had to spend some time trying to learn how to pronounce these words. I'm not great at it, but I always believe that with indigenous languages, it's best, better to speak them poorly than to not speak them at all. I'm actually a student of indigenous language poorly. I'm also enrolled in the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma. So I do have a perspective on this that reflects that. And so the Inkaha'it for the Salih is the spirit of the water. And for many First Nations and indigenous people, well, for really everybody, but water is precious. Water is life. And Inkaha'ih is part of that sacredness and part of that connection. And the Salih, as they say, this is misunderstood by these new European folks in the area um, who interpreted the stories as something unusual and novel at best and monstrous or evil at worst. And so today, if you search for the Ogopogo, which is in the past what Inkaha'ih has been called, the, it, the Wikipedia article, the first thing you're going to see if you just Google it, reads that the Salih natives regarded the Ogopogo, which they called, I think it says Nataka, as an evil supernatural entity with great power and ill intent. And I, I actually think I found the reference for this. It was, bless his heart, Leonard Nimoy. <laughs> um, oh. You can see, uh, what was it called? In Search Of? I love that show. In Search Of was my favorite. In Search Of, yeah. So there's a, a part of Search Of where they give this story. And I think might be where that particular part of Wikipedia comes from. But you found and something different coming from, from First Nations from sources? Yeah. And I mean, they do have, to be fair, because I, I think Leonard Nimoy did the best he could for that time. To be fair, they do have an indigenous person, but I don't know. It, it's like he's talking for a while and then they cut and then they have a museum interpreter and then they tell the story. So the he gets 70s to talk were about, a weird decade, remember? Yeah, he gets to talk about part of it, but then they just, I, I'm not sure that they let him finish if he would have said something different or if he would have understood it in that way. And you also have to understand that for many indigenous people, there was a time between <laughs> before the 70s, the 70s were also a time with boarding schools. So you have to understand that a lot of indigenous peoples had lost a connection to their ancestors. They lost a connection to their language. In Cherokee Nation, they talk a lot about Cherokee being that people who are learning now, we're like the first generation that had to learn Cherokee on our own, that didn't have our elders teach it to us. And so, you know, things get lost in translation sometimes. So I don't know why that man in there said, I could ask, and I probably should ask the Salih. They are really good about wanting to be involved in how they're portrayed. So that's something I should um, email their tribal council. But like I said, 
there's a, a, a little snippet even now from the town of Kelowna. And that is a town that's just on the on Lake Ogopogo. And it says something differently. It says stories date back thousands of years where the interior Salish First Nations people asked Ntaka'ik, the spirit of the lake. Um, stories of Ntaka'ik changed over the years as European settlers transformed the stories they heard into a creature which later became known as Ogopogo. And the purported sightings over the years continue to strengthen the legend. To see Ogopogo for yourself, be sure to visit the statue on Bernard Avenue near Kelowna's city park. So in the description of colonial settlers, Ogopogo is said it had similar characteristics to Caddy or Nessie or Chessie. And so the statue you'll see looks very much just like a cartoon sea monster. And much like them, it was first put into the 20th century in newspapers. I can find something from 1912, but there was this strong oral tradition from before. And you'll, you know, you'll probably notice that it's mentioned in the tourist, this message from the tourist board, kind of slyly, not saying, come here and try to find him. Um, <laughs> so they're like, no, there's a statue you can see. Hint, hint, go look in the lake. Um, <laughs> but a long time ago, I, I was actually in Kelowna, and I might be pronouncing it wrong then too, but I was nine, so, you know, so sue me. But um, it was the 80s, and I was a little kid. And my family, we were, and I were staying with friends in the area and we spent time around Lake Okanagan. And, you know, I've mentioned before, I love Jackalope and that might be my favorite cryptid, even though it's not a true cryptid. But the first thing time I really spent time trying to find something was in the eighties at Lake Okanagan or Okanagan Lake. And so you know, my kid and I sat at the lake and I watched and I waited probably for a few hours, but it seemed like I was there for days. Like in my mind, I sat there for a week. Was it the sincerest pumpkin patch in Lake? In yeah, the lake? basically. Yeah. <laughs> my great pumpkin. And the reason I bring this up is because what was known as the spirit of the water and held a place in spiritual belief of the First Nations around there was being used in the 80s and promoted by nearby towns for tourism. Not just with a wink, they were offering a hefty reward for photographic evidence of the serpent in the lake. Hmm. And, you know, as a nine-year-old, uh, it was like I think it was something like a million dollars. It was some crazy amount wow. to a nine-year-old. Um, it's a crazy amount to me right now. Let's face it. <laughs> <laughs> um, didn't sound so bad. But, you know, the name Ogopogo is a word that they don't really know the origins of. Who knows when their water spirit started to be referred to by Ogopogo, by the settlers. It's a gibberish word, as far as anyone knows. But according to Salik traditional knowledge holder, Trisha Manuel, as told to Kelsey Kalana in her April 2020 article in Indigenous, the Salik word literally means there's a sacred being in the water. And because of the sacredness and meaning held behind Inkahaik, Manuel says that when she sees stuffies, um, which I'm assuming is Canadian for what Americans call stuffed animals, of Ogopogo and people diving in the lake to try to catch a sighting, she feels that's minimizing and tokenizing something that's sacred to original peoples of this land. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, I think that that's, what do you think, Eric? I think that's fair. <laughs> that's very fair, right? I'm thinking of, you know, I'm thinking in analogies here and that if you, there were something 
analogous from a more f- familiar religious tradition, that that would probably be seen as at least bad form. Well, it gets it gets a little more clearly that it is because um, that's not the only appropriation. Um, it turns out that, and I should have mentioned that Ogopogo as a word, like the Ogopogo, there's been books published using the word Ogopogo. There's been Ogopogo in store, uh, like movies and film. And this, you're thinking, okay, so what? Well, it turns out that not only had their water spirit been renamed, but that name was under copyright since 1956 and held by the town of Vernon in the Okanagan region. Hmm. So not only they they were making money off of it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Yikes. That's, yeah. Wow. So then think about something in religion, like, I don't know. I mean, I don't. Yeah. To even make the analogy feels a little disrespectful. That suddenly suddenly copywritten and it's, you're making money every time it's used. Right. Someone decides to copyright a piece of your religion and make money off of it when they're not even holding that spiritual belief themselves. I think in one of the, yeah, I think in one of the articles they said it was like, you know, imagine someone would copyright Moses. Sure. And that just, many people will seem like you can't do that. So it actually has an ending where in March of 2021, after bad press, the Vernon City Council actually voted in favor of returning the copyright. So um, the copyright has been given back to its rightful owner. They are working on making sure that people use the correct name. And I think that's a pretty... I'm not saying it's not a happy ending, but I think that that that's a pretty good start. It's a move in the right direction for sure. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have a post. I have a, a little postscript here to add to our show today because I, I thought I said something and it sounded wrong when I said it, but I had to check it. So I did. And I went to the authority of Wikipedia, of course. I think I said that oarfish get to be 30 meters long. That would be an enormous fish, by the way, right? Because, again, translating, translating that into Americanish, that would be, you know, 90 feet long about or there's an abouts. And 90 feet long is putting it near the largest animal on the planet has ever known, the blue whale. Oarfish don't get that big. Uh, I, like Americans, always do screwed up the metric system. That's what I get for trying to use it. It's more like eight meters, which puts it more in the neighborhood of 30 feet. So it's it's still a big fish, but it's not as big as I had said before. And here's really the punchline to the whole thing. Can I read this sentence straight from Wikipedia? Because you're going to love this, Becca. I did. <laughs> it's physical characteristics and it's undulating mode of swimming. Thank you. <laughs> have led to speculation that it might be the source of many sea serpent sightings. So there you have it, folks. Thanks for coming Justified. out to listen to Jackalope Carnival this week. I hope Keep you had a good time. <laughs> Take care. Jackalope Carnival! He turned what he filmed over to the Smithsonian um, Institution in D.C. 
or miss is it smithsonian institute yeah, 